0: I felt very strongly that if I'm going to start my own business at this point, it needs to bring in all of those elements that I've experienced and that I feel are important to me. And that does not just include uh, the parts we mentioned, which is sort of you know, the, the creative uh, aspect of building a brand like The Lighthouse, or even the more kind of analytical aspect of, of my work. It also has the cultural dimension.
1: Hi, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, Khaled and I have the pleasure to host Hashem Muntasir, co-founder of The Lighthouse. You spent 10 years in asset management and over 15 total in finance, angel investor, art collector, and host of The Lighthouse Conversations podcast, which is a Lua Capital favorite across the board. Um, so Hashim, tell us more about yourself. So where did it all start? And did you at any point think you'd be in f and I mean, it'd be great if you could share the story with us.
0: Thank you. Well, first of all, thank you. I'm honestly delighted to be on your podcast. I'm a big fan of, uh, as you know, of of Khaled and all of you, really, and and what you guys are doing. And I think uh, we covered some of this in previous uh, conversations, but I think your approach also to what you're doing in terms of investing, in terms of your own firm, that is no capital. is very refreshing. So I really, uh, I'm I'm delighted to be in a very small part of it by participating today. Um, And thank you, Stephanie, for the question. I will try to keep it relatively brief, but um, uh, in terms of background, do you, you, you want me to start with where, where do, how far do you want me to go? Yeah.
2: <laughs> so, yeah, like, I mean, look, uh, if, if we're honest, Yanni, we're also like really delighted to have you on, on the podcast and because every conversation with you is always interesting and we, sp- we spent a lot of time speaking on the phone, especially during COVID, and I think they're one of my most illuminating conversations. Uh, I think what's what's interesting, particularly about you, Hashim, is that you're kind of like, um, for lack of a better better word, like a Renaissance man, right? You kind of like go across different <laughs> different areas: art, F and B, finance, uh, and you know, having spoke spoke to you like a lot over the past couple of years. Well, not as much as I'd like, but um, a bit. Um, I I think it's really worth going back to the beginning and it's like where you grew up sure. and, and how sure. that shaped you and your family and like how that got you into business and into, into college and business. And then, you know, I think that's a really interesting story just because of the outcome of that, which is who you are today.
0: Thank you. Well, well calling me Renaissance Man is, is definitely a, a huge compliment, especially coming from you. So I'll take it any day. Uh, well, look, I mean, I think maybe I'll, um, I'll start from the beginning, but I'll start I'll jump first and I'll go back, if that makes any sense. Um, you know, one of the reasons, uh, and there were many that I decided to uh, start something fresh about six years, or almost seven years ago now, uh, having spent almost, as you said, Stephanie, you know, uh, a decade plus in, in in finance and asset management and so on and so forth, is that I had, at that point, became, became I don't want to say over-identified, but it become very synonymous with what I was doing and um, in banking and in asset management and the firms I worked with and worked for. And I felt a little bit trapped, not in a bad way. I actually really enjoyed what I was doing, especially the team building part and the, the firm building part and even the asset gathering to some extent. But I felt that there were many other facets of my, that I'm interested in and of my personality that I was uh, not able to express because I was doing something that required a very particular skill. And parts of that personality were coming in on a day-to-day because building a business um, is never easy as you guys are, are seeing, and as you guys know, from having invested in a lot of businesses. So I decided to kind of take a French approach and, and really go to the basics. And I think that's, that brings us, to Khaled, to your point, in terms of uh, how and where I grew up. I mean, I grew up in Cairo, I'm Egyptian, I grew up in a very academic household. Both my parents were professors at university. My father did a bunch of other stuff. He worked with the UN, etc. But at heart, was really an economist, a hardcore economist, in fact. So I remember days of him, you know, trying to explain to me certain concepts, and you know, uh, uh, literally bringing in napkins during you know lunch or dinner conversation, and and you know drawing ISLM curves and things like that, and me being completely huh. daunted and being like, oh God. A, I don't understand anything. too. how would right. I ever match, match up to that? So right. I was very privileged in that sense. My parents were um, were really, I mean, my mother, similarly, issues. She t- taught English literature, but one of my best friends used to say she was sort of, you know, Google, pre-Google. You know, it was kind of funny. You could speak about almost anything. She loved reading, and they had an insatiable level of curiosity. My dad was definitely more gan- granular in the sense that he focused on uh, particular subjects, economics being one of them, uh, investing being another one. He was not a very good investor, but he tried. Uh, whereas my mother was probably similar to what Khaled called me, uh, which I think is very, very generous, uh, but really, you know, a Renaissance woman in many ways. I mean, her interests really were wide-ranging. And these are days before the internet, you know, as we all know. we were still getting books in the mail and, and uh, checking out books from libraries, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. So I think that really defined a lot of my personal curiosities. Uh, I do think that you're born with curiosity, uh, but I also think you can challenge yourself and pursue it. Um, and, and that was sort of brings us back to the point that I was saying earlier, which is I felt that I wanted to be in a position to do multiple things at the same time without it taking away from, uh, either my work or the people that are around me. And, and, um, The building blocks were as such, I started, uh, I was in a German school in Cairo. So I had, I think I was very lucky to have a strong foundation. It was a very rigorous school. Germans are notoriously no nonsense, as you know. Uh, But it gave me also a bit of an understanding of obviously European culture, history, literature. And Germans were always very strong in all of these things, physics, sciences. So doing Uh all in German, German was a privilege. Uh, And then I went to the States. I spent about 10 years there in college and business school and worked on Wall Street. And and the Wall Street years gave me, I think, the the fundamentals. You know, if you read a book now, I think that's a classic, like Liar Spoker. Um, Really, it was truly that. I mean, you know, with the whole thing about all coming together in analyst class and training and so on and so forth. So that was the toolkit that I built slowly but steadily over a number of years in the U.S., um, I was on the trading side, so the financial market side from the beginning. So not corporate finance, which also really informed my way of thinking about finance. Because most analysts at the time that would come out of colleges, certainly Ivy League colleges, would typically go into investment banking, corporate finance, you know, and it would want to be in the M&A group or one of those. And mm-hmm. I went to the sales and trading side and I was actually, well, beginning, of course, I wasn't, but eventually trading, um, Fixed income um, bonds, I mean, many years, emerging market bonds. Uh, there's something called Brady bonds that are now no longer with us, but they were the early stage of emerging market bonds, and then eventually wind up going into fixed income derivatives. Um, so interest rates and, and credit derivatives and things of that nature. And then I, um, so that was, those were the building blocks. And that takes me to post business school, uh, being in London. At that point, I had left from New York to London. And then really the first taste of entrepreneurship, if you will, came twofold. One is I had a very short stint for about a year between college and uh, and business school, just before business school when I left Merrill Lynch, which is my first employer it, it, on Wall Street. And it was the first internet boom. I mean, it was a time in, you know, late 90s, early 2000, when you had, you know, Amazon, you know, and that those businesses come out. And I spent a year at a company called Cosmo.com, which today would be a combination of Amazon Prime and
2: yeah.
0: uh, Instacart. It's actually fascinating, and you know it's so funny because I was listening to a podcast yesterday about some of these things. A lot of these companies, right? I mean, um, that today are back celebrated. Webvan comes to mind. Pets.com. You know, those were uh, a generation. They were just too early, and Cosmo was one of those companies. I mean, it was. Through your door, under an hour. It started with DVDs um, and then really moved into all sorts of other SQs. The model just, at the time, wasn't appreciated, and we didn't know how to price it properly, and it crashed. And I used it as a basically a business school essay. But it gave me a first glimpse of, of mm-hmm. entrepreneurship, a first glimpse of what technology could do. And then I completely forgot about it, went back worked for J.P. Morgan, Moved to Dubai and started uh, building an asset management business for efg which was a publicly traded Egyptian bank. And um, that gave me a different taste. And that was a taste of building a business from scratch. I was very lucky at EFG. I, had, uh, I was reporting to the CEO directly and um, he was Cairo based and gave me a lot of leeway into building that business. So I came, I took a fund that was about uh, totally maybe 40, 50 million dollars. And we started building the team, the business, the infrastructure, everything from scratch. And we spent six years very systematically doing that, wind up being the largest asset manager uh, in the region in terms of public. This was, we were managing public securities uh, and manage about, at the peak, eight, eight and a half billion dollars. So a sizable amount. Um, and And so I learned a lot from that period. I mean, definitely team, building team, building a business, even within a business, because I had the support of. A parent, a parent company, which was crucial, uh, was extremely helpful. But in many ways, it was really a very entrepreneurial as well. And EFG at the time was competing with all the big boys who weren't in the region yet, the Goldman's, J.P. Morgan, etc. So uh, I learned a different skill set there. And then to make a long story short, after a few other stints, I wound up deciding to leave uh, asset management altogether and start my own business. And there was no sense of wanting to do something in F&B. There was a sense of wanting to fill a niche uh, or a void that I felt in Dubai. And that void started with, there were spaces that I really enjoyed in other countries or cities that I didn't find here. And Mm -hmm. how can we build that space, but around a business that's commercially viable? Not just, so I didn't want to, for example, um, you know, just own a cultural space uh, that is not commercially viable, that maybe relies on donations or... To anything with that, nothing against that, there's a, there's a big role for those, but that wasn't my interest, it had to marry also my commercial instincts. So, that's the early stages of the Lighthouse. We came to D3, which was just at its beginning, and you guys worked here, so you know the evolution of D3. We started with the concept store idea, believe it or not, and then said to ourselves, That was Henny and I. So, Henny had worked with me for 10 years at EFG and beyond in my last job after EFG as well, it was pretty Suisse. Uh, so we are, uh, we're very close. Uh, we had a very good working relationship. And our, uh, we complemented each other both in terms of temperament and in terms of skill set. As you can see, of course, I'm the calm guy and he's the more <laughs> combusted. So that's <laughs> obviously very obvious. So thank you for Quick yes. question.
1: So do you yeah. feel like you almost venture built the lighthouse with Hani? <laughs> in the way where you you, you saw a gap, but you, you, you knew exactly how you wanted to build a business that was also commercially viable and offered the type of experience you were looking to to offer?
0: That's a great question. Yes, but only in retrospect, because I wouldn't have even known that term at the time or described it as such. Number two, we um, didn't. We had the luxury of being self-financed very deliberately because we did not know if which direction would take, and we wanted maximum flexibility. So when you think today about venture, especially in, in your area of technology, even if the idea completely morphs over time, which it often does, and we talk about pivots and all of that, it typically uh, you know, starts from the beginning. People today are, are raising funds. I don't have to tell you that, but pre-seed. We were sort of like, we have an idea, we need a space. Now, how do we fill the space with stuff? that people have come back to. And it started with the retail gifting element concept store. But we also very quickly, before we opened to our credit, realized that that could be very challenging uh, in the days of Amazon and others. And, and so when I started traveling around the world and doing some research, uh, I left my job and took about a year doing that. Henning was still working at, in Qatar with Credit Suisse uh, with Aventicum Capital Management, which is the last company I, I started before I left banking. Um, I realized that, um, you know, many of them that were successful made it with food, food brought footfall uh, and a certain feel. So I said, you know, great. Okay, well, let's then have a concept store with a cafe maybe. And I happened to know a well-known chef here, Chef Izu, who had uh, been uh, the head chef at La Petite when it first opened to Great Van and then moved on to La And he was looking also to start his own business or consulting business, basically, uh, and really got got our ideas. He said, no, I'll partner with you, and I will be in charge of the kind of menu development and F&B part. And we really spoke the same language, just came at it from different uh, ways, which really created the Lighthouse in 2017, again, as a space that is very fluid. Hence the things, Stephanie, that you mentioned at the beginning, they were um, not forced. You know, from the outset, we thought we should have talks. From the outset, we were hoping to get an interesting uh, customer base, which we did. And I think the look and feel of the Lighthouse helped with that. The food certainly helped. Um, and we followed very basic guidelines that sound very esoteric today, but I actually looked them up uh, today for our conversation. And it's the same presentation that we put together uh, a year before we launched, believe it or not, in 2016, and one slide, uh, and I'm reading from it now, that talks about brand drivers. And it says, a curated design experience and has a number of attributes. Um, timeless, and I'll go through those in a minute. Functional, minimal, experimental, a beacon, and communal. And really, it's actually, I'm quite proud to say that five years later, five plus, those are still our the, the boxes that we tick against everything. So let's use an example. If I look at something like Timeless, from the outset, we said let's have a menu that may evolve over time, as it should, but I don't want to follow you know just certain food trends. Not because avocado is hot today, then we should have it on every dish. Uh, I don't want to have music uh, playlists that are going to be also following charts because those come in and out. Same with interior design, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Certainly the products that we put in the concept store. So once we started following those, um, value drivers, if you will, Um, we felt safe, and we always need to check back in to make sure that's still the case. And that essentially created the space that's the lighthouse. Of course, today it's been seen, and that's perfectly fine, by the way, more of a restaurant plus, and we're fine with that. But that means that all the other elements uh, came very naturally, didn't feel forced, were not done for necessarily You know, commercial reasons. Although we wanted to be commercially viable, but felt very much as an extension of who we are and the brand we wanted to build.
2: Yeah. So uh, just to kind of go back for a second, because you know, really interested in unpacking what makes for a good entrepreneur, irrespective of the sector. Which I think you know, given your journey, it's like you've got a lot of entrepreneurial moments throughout your career, especially you know more recently, but even before, right, when you when you started up. Uh, businesses before. And I think uh, how much of that um, would you trace to, you know, um, the curiosity of your childhood in that type of setting? I mean, I think, think it's really interesting. You mentioned uh, ISLM curves, which is, of course, like, you know, the Keynesian thing, the Keynesian representation, the, the mathematical representation of Keynesianism. And then I know that your mom is a um, a modernist literary scholar, right? Like a Virginia Woolf, what yes. she like wrote her thesis on, and and that's the inspiration for obviously the lighthouse, which I, I love to bring up every time because it's one of my favorite no. things. <laughs> so do but, I. <laughs> uh, so so you have this kind of like Bloomsbury Group setting, like growing up, yeah. basically, like. And how how much of that is um, informs you know the create? How much do you attribute that type of setting? to uh, the creative process necessary to be an entrepreneur. I mean, how does that, I, I'd love to kind of like hear from you how that kind of like feeds into the whole thing.
0: I think in the business we are in a lot. So, uh, you know, the Bloomsbury group that you mentioned, which was a kind of mid-century London group of intellectuals, artists that came together, Virginia Woolf being one of them, Virginia Woolf being an inspiration. My mother wrote her PhD in Virginia Woolf and also To the Lighthouse is one of her seminal novels. Hence mm-hmm. the word lighthouse amongst others. So all of that came together and we actually, on our menu. If you open our menu from day one, Bloomsbury mm-hmm. Group is featured. So we definitely thought about that and we actually quote uh, from um, a book that was written about the Bloomsbury Group saying, say, saying that fresh, uh, so lingering breakfasts and fresh meals were part of yes. their kind of thing. You know, oh. So that was, so we understood, okay, now food is very much part of that. Now to answer your question, yeah. it did inform a lot of um, the creative license, if you will, uh, in mm-hmm. the sense that I allowed myself and Hany to dream and think about some concepts that may not be known to everyone, but make it a very integral part of the brand. I think that was uh, risky, but very intentional. And we did understand that some people will get the full story, some people get some of the story, and that's okay. But it creates a certain vibe and creative flow. Mm-hmm. Having yeah. said that, I think that the other part of it, which is building a business that we all know, which is, you know, a balance sheet and income statement, budgets, cost control, revenue projections, that I don't know if the creative part in itself would have been sufficient for us. It may have been sufficient to create a a brand. I don't know if it would have been enough, I I honestly don't, to create a sustainable commercial enterprise. So marrying the two was also essential, but also very much part of who you are. So, you know, when I looked at my background, I mean, that's when some of the, in a very simplistic way, you mm-hmm. know, the, 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 the building blocks that I spoke about earlier came into place. Uh, I, I had been familiar with PNL. I had been familiar with having a budget. I've been familiar, certainly, with the concept of, you know, high margin is better than low margin. Um, and yeah. I can tell you that asset management. As you are about to find out, has a much higher margin huh. than F and B, huh. but <laughs> but uh, but but I think I wanted to dream, and that was part of the fun. So I think that is a big part of brand building. You know, not to be um, uh, be a little bit well, well, why not? Actually, let's do it to be a little bit maybe out there and talk about really big brands. I mean, look at you know. Uh, Apple, and they're, they're always, uh, there's an aspiration element. Not everybody yeah. has Steve Jobs' aesthetics or uh, love of design and you know, the way he simplified all of that. Um, but some people buy the phone just because it's a great phone or it's a great computer. And some, probably like myself, are far more gravitate towards aesthetics and the beauty of what they've done in terms of phones and other products. I don't think it matters to Steve Jobs and whoever came after Steve Jobs today, but it started from that onset. So I do think it's, it's important for entrepreneurs it, it, to, to allow themselves to dream a bit, not to be regulate their creativity and thought processes in the very early stages. So uh, because once you're set, it's hard to go back. You know, three years into the business, it's very hard to then fill in those brand drivers yeah. and values that I spoke about. Uh, And I felt, Khaled, to your point, and this brings us back to your original conversation when we started today, I felt very strongly that if I'm going to start my own business at this point, it needs to bring in all of those elements that I've experienced Mm -hmm. and that I feel are important to me. And that does not just include uh, the parts we mentioned, which is sort of, you know, the the creative uh, aspect of building a brand like The Lighthouse or even the more kind of analytical aspect of, of my work. It also has the cultural dimension. And that yeah. culture dimension is also very much part of how, where, where and how I grew up. I mean, I grew up in a very vibrant um, uh, Cairo in the 80s in its own way. You know, uh, um, it wasn't maybe what it was uh, in the pre-revolution days of 1930s yeah. and 40s, but it certainly had a very active, you know, cultural scene of art, photography, theater, the opera, all sorts of others. And it was an important part of, our identities yeah. and how I grew up. I wanted to bring that in as well. Um, and that's when things like the Lighthouse Conversation started as a conversation in the Lighthouse actually, before it took a podcast form, bringing speakers, book signings, all of these things. Because to me, culture is binding. And uh, on a more opportunistic perspective, Dubai, in my view at the time, didn't have enough of that. And any additional effort would help. And we were not governed by factors such as um, stakeholders, such as the government or, you know, pure commercial uh, business like some of the others. We were in the middle. The cultural part was binding, but was not really what the driving force yeah. behind the business. So it gave us creative license to do pretty much uh, whatever we wanted mm-hmm. within, within reason. And, and it became a very much part of the brand. In fact, we have partners over the years with almost all of the cultural. Culture organizations in Dubai and in the UAE, and we're very proud of that. And that kind of made us uh, to use a German word as part of the zeitgeist. You know, yeah. you you're really um, yeah living the moment. And as Dubai and the UAE um, evolves, the lighthouse can evolve with it. That's a really nice thing.
2: Yeah, it's interesting around like that time Cairo in the eighties. That's that's really like almost like the. The pinnacle of like the post-revolutionary cultural moment, right? In in Cairo, would you say that that's that's the right thing? That's when, I mean, that's you know, obviously, Naguib Mahfouz wrote in most of his novels in the late fifties and sixties, but they seem to come into their own then, right? Like, there's something about right. Am I am I misreading that? Or no, I I I think think that's exactly
0: right. I mean, I think that's exactly right. So, I think the eighties. Look, I mean, you had not to go too much into into politics or to Egypt, but you had enough space after the revolution, you know, 1952. Mubarak at that point had been in power long enough to get comfortable. I mean, Sadat was assassinated in 1981. Uh, So, you know, by the time I'm born in 1974. So as a teenager, Mubarak had been in power long enough uh, to, you know, have asserted... uh, his imprint, if you will, yeah, yeah, and therefore things were uh, they, they, they were there were certain freedoms um, that were allowed certainly within the culture front, but others as well, and you felt that. I mean, you know, it's a it's a big it's a big place mm. with all sorts of facets. So I have to say, culturally, um, it, it felt very satisfying, and when I moved to Dubai in two thousand and five it felt a bit like, you know what, they could uh, not follow the Egyptian model, of course, very different place and time, but I felt we could infuse some of that. Um, and there were already a grassroots effort here, both top-down from the government, but also grassroots like Serkan Avenue and others. And we felt, I felt that we should be part of that uh, moment um, and be a binding glue where we can And that's where our offering, be it uh, especially the food element became very important because we could participate by offering, you know, catering services, pop ups bringing people to the lighthouse, having conversations in a setting. And again, that takes us back to the Bloomsbury Group that is very inviting because people very rarely uh, reject an offer to come eat or drink uh, if 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 it's fun.
2: So, yeah, I think that what's interesting is this kind of dialectic of the, you know, the aesthetic and the analytical, as you say, is like, you know, in your case, it like came out of, you know, the household you grew up in and then into college, I assume. And, you know, something that's, you know, and that's really kind of massively informs your entrepreneurial journey. It's kind of like how you conceptualize the, the business, how you thought about the brand, how you thought about... You know, you, you know, on both sides, on the analytical side, but also on the, on the aesthetic side. And those coming together is what makes the whole thing work. You know, one thing that's really, you know, uh, uh, something I'm really interested in is, is how much that, for lack of a, um, a better word, like kind of liberal arts education, whether formal at university or, or informally through like, you know, the type of life you lead, how critical that is in, 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 in building businesses and becoming an entrepreneur. And I think you've, you know, Steve Jobs being like a prime example of that, given his background in, in, in the arts, but then also on the tech side. And I feel, and, and I'd love to kind of hear your input on this, is you really feel in this part of the world, it's a bit lacking the, the, that the, the emphasis on, um, you know, the seeking knowledge for knowledge's sake and being exposed to very, very different disciplines especially as we kind of like enter this era that seems to be really a really betting on economic progress driven by entrepreneurs right so do you feel that there is a bit of a gap across in our part of the world and at east more broadly and, and and what do you think drives that and how can we make that better
0: yeah look i think it's a, it's complicated um because entrepreneurship in our part of the world um you know, is implicit, but not explicit as it is in other cultures, especially American culture, of course, where, you know, it's a badge of honor. So while we have had, especially if you look at countries like Egypt, Lebanon, Palestine, to some extent Jordan, there have been many, many very successful entrepreneurial stories. But that's Mm -hmm. not what comes to mind when you think about success stories, in most cases, right? There's a few... Mm There's a few examples which we covered in, in before, like Aramex and others, where you generally have an almost an American textbook style story, you know? Founders build business from scratch, grow it over time, goes public, etc. But most of what we hear about, uh, the way we all grew up in this part of the world, is uh, usually more top-down, you know, government-dominated yeah. companies. So you are far better off, not better off, but more uh, respected to be the head of uh, a large state bank, then you are building a business from scratch. Even mm-hmm. if that business becomes a very big success. Uh, yeah. Of course, when it doesn't become a success, many times governments co-opt it. Uh, and the lines between entrepreneurship and state sponsorship is blurred. So I think that has confused many generations, including mine and yours, whereby it's not clear. In the US, it's very clear, right? You want to be Steve Jobs. You want to be bill gates yeah you want to yeah. be maybe not today but at least used to be mark zuckerberg etc so so here um it's a little bit more confusing and i agree with you what that means is the creative elements are bracketed either within oh he's an arts person or a culture person mm. uh, or he's an engineer you know i mean i always laugh both my parents were professors uh, my wife is a professor so when I go home uh and I'm walking into my building, you know they they are a bit you know, if <laughs> 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 you doctora know, manak a doctora asam, doctora mai will be a it's of lack of you know of I, I yeah. have to give you something. If I became the bachelor. You know, but thankfully I have earned uh, without earning, without needing. I have a, now an engineering degree or yeah. some kind of degree. And, you know, then when they found that Bushwanis maybe doesn't work, and as I stayed uh, abroad longer, I became Mr. Hash. Fine. They've landed yeah. on Mr. Hash, which is bad. Bordering offensive, right? <laughs> yeah. You've officially been <laughs> out long enough. But my point being is that, that those are the brackets. So you are right. I think um, we have not seen many uh, of those stories. And I think they exist. But our, again, kind of... Um, natural consciousness has not, has not celebrated them or brought them out. I mean, part of the effort we do that has conversations, and I think you guys are doing with this podcast and with your work in general, is to celebrate the process and the journey. yeah, um, yeah. Not just the final success story where even sometimes the, if they were entrepreneurial turns the themselves, starts kind of editing back their story, right? And the story, because it sounds insurmountable, So I agree with you that that we're not there yet, but I definitely think what we are experiencing here, largely thanks to technology, is still a very seismic shift because all of a sudden technology has allowed many, many entrepreneurs and want to be entrepreneurs and intelligent people to bypass all sorts of red tape to connect with people all over the place. So in my view, the region is going through some kind of renaissance, maybe in the very early days. I'm being optimistic, but I, I believe that's the case um, mm. where you are seeing uh, that now. I mean, today, I was uh, laughing earlier today. We get a daily report from our uh, restaurant managers that tell us about, uh, you know, how many covers, this many reservations, et cetera, et cetera. And at the end, we ask them to put if there were any notable guests, just so we know. And by that, they could be friends of mine. So Khaled Talwouni came today you know, with his wife, enjoyed his, uh, you know, breakfast, so that I know. Uh, or people that are known. And I was uh, telling my wife this morning, what's funny is I've seen, even within our five years, that has changed from names that sort of came from the world of finance to today, mostly from the world of technology. Those yeah. are the mm-hmm. new notable guests. Those are the people that people are hearing about. And when you start mm-hmm. hearing the stories of uh, the ketopis, etc., in the press and so on, People are taking notice, and that's great. That's really, I think, good because it's shifting the conversation and the paradigm a little bit.
2: Yeah. I mean, the thing with entrepreneurship is that it, what's, what's powerful about it, it allows the individual to um, basically take control of their own economic destiny, which and is relative. at odds. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. Narrative, and,
0: right? It's not just economic destiny. Sorry to interrupt yeah. you. It's yeah. it's also what it has meaning. I mean, one of the things about you know, I mean, some of these banking jobs, and I'm not, I, I was a big beneficiary of that era, and I'm very grateful. But sometimes it's so sucking, you know, these corporate jobs. And so the entrepreneur, you know, it really is true, and the entrepreneurship allows you not just from economic perspective, but I think also you dictate and not dictate. You you have you tell your story, and it has meaning. So I think yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't underestimate how important it is for many of us. To wake up in the morning and feel that what you do has meaning. It's meaning. Yeah. Um, I really think that is a big, big driver. Whether people see it or not when they do it, I'm not sure. But it certainly resonates
2: with me. Yeah. And, and it kind of is contrary to the um, idea of like the kind of status society, right? Because you're, you're kind of like, those seem to be like clashing with each other in some way, shape or form. And it'll be interesting to see how it kind of plays out because technology really, what technology allows today is really enabling, it's it's the easiest time in history to start a business, right? Because you have all the tools 100%. that bring 100%. down all those kind of cumbersome barriers. But then there is a kind of separate social construct um, in our societies that are, I don't want to say averse to it, but like that are different, right? And it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. Of, of, of those two kind of forces coming together. Hopefully, it's all for the better, right? It kind of propels us forward economically, socially, um, and the rest of it. But it'll be interesting to see kind of how it plays out in the next, in the next uh, few years and what, what the kind of longstanding social impacts are.
0: No, I agree with you. And another thing that you and I had discussed in previous conversations is it's enabled people to connect across borders. And without being cliche, but... For a region that ultimately, within the larger context of the world globally, is not that large, that is essential. You know, I mean, you know, so it really is essential that someone is looking at, you know, capital and saying they can invest in the whole Middle East because then it's worthwhile for them to invest in that company, you know, to give you money because, you know, it's a broader market. Um, and I think technology is helping with that. And that's a really, really important point. Mm-hmm. You know, um, when we were uh, at EFG, I think one of the big selling attributes for international investors was that he can be in my fund and be in all of the Middle East. He's not interested in investing in the UEE and Egypt and Kuwait and Saudi separately. He wants someone yeah. or a company to come and tell them, you know what, I can be in all of these places. Now, can you be in all of them equally? No, but you certainly have a lot of insight to operate in many of those markets. Uh, technology is facilitating that in a very major way, and I hope that continues to happen because if it splinters into subregions again, uh, it may be exciting for whoever is benefiting from the sub. I think for mm. in a global a picture, no one no one cares. It's too small, it's not relevant.
1: I want to take it back to um, to the lighthouse it's um, It's a strong brand it's it's almost a, essentially a platform. it's come to represent food. But also experience, but also community. Um, one of the things that comes to mind when when we go to the lighthouse or when we think of the of it is it feels familiar, um, and it's also consistent. So you you know that you're always going to get uh, the same experience more or less. But how do you build for that?
0: That's a very good question. Um, honestly, the only way to build for that is. At the beginning, uh, when you're obviously in one location, it's iteration. I mean, it's just again and again. Um, at the beginning, to refine the model and hone it. Once you feel you have something that's working, you need to build a process around scaling that, and that's hard. So you know, in our business, we have um, SOPs, so standard procedure about everything that the you know the the sequence of service, how the table is being. Uh, um, put together before the guests come, how we upsell a guest, how we present the bill. All of those things sound like they should be completely um, spontaneous, but ultimately they need to be studied and uh, put together in a manual in a way, and then scaled. That's the only way to try to get uh, a consistent experience across multiple locations. More locations. And mind you, this is not just anymore a physical Experience it's also a digital experience. Exactly. Okay. So today, as the lines are completely blurred, as you very well know, you know Khalid may very well um, hit up the lighthouse on Instagram, asking for how can I order. He may very well um, show up in one of our locations and actually eat inside. He may order from a Cloud Kitchen that serves the lighthouse. I mean, in our case, that's not the case for quality reasons, but it could be and maybe in the foreseeable f- future and he's relatively indifferent so our job is to make that experience to your point stephanie uh, seamless and uh, standardized and consistent across all of that it's it's a tall order i'm not gonna lie um anything that touches consumers is a tall order but it really has to do with first figuring out what makes your brand tick and once you have documented as much as possible, and it's excruciating, painful painful exercise, but it's very, very necessary. That's your DNA. That is your IP, exactly like uh, a tech company has an IT and a bunch of codes that, you know, codes are put together that maybe kind of is their secret sauce. Um, Everything else goes from there, and we've been, you know, uh, working on that for a long time. The reason we only started expanding after about four years was exactly that point. I did not, and Henry did not feel comfortable that we had an experience, it was steadily improving, but consistent enough day in, day out with a culture that is binding for us to then move it beyond one location to both multiple locations and essentially online to the extent possible.
1: So a a bit of a different question. How big of a role, if any, do you feel that tech plays in that today?
0: I think an increasingly important role. So I think that tech works, in my view, technology uh, for for F&B works in a number of fronts. So one, what I don't like, uh, I'll I'll be very upfront about that, and this is not just in F&B, but in other other industries as well, people trying to masquerade as tech companies. I think we all see through it. You know, in other words, having an app doesn't mean you're a tech company. Uh, You know, uh, so i think there's a lot of masquerading because of obvious reasons the main reason be valuations your multiple all of a sudden could go from you know 10x to maybe 30x just because you are tech uh, but those are gimmicky things and they're not going to work longer term in my view what i do believe is when i look at our business is i look at technology on a number of fronts a for as an internal efficiency tool so you can hugely streamline your internal operations by technology. This starts from simple things like Slack and Asana as, 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 as uh, messaging and communication tools to, of course, your entire uh, supply chain, right? You can from inventory management, uh, POS, uh, accounting, payroll, all of those things today can be automated and would have very tangible effect on both uh, efficiency and cost reduction. And the name of the game in F&B is about that because ultimately you need to eke out as much margin as you humanly can without compromising the customer experience or the quality of your offer. And then the second part, when it comes to the revenue side, so this is the cost side. Revenue side is looking at it from a customer experience and there's huge amount of, I think, um, advancement that's happening there, as you well know everything from, which is already happening, ordering off your phone. I mean, it started out with digitizing menus. Today, many of us can order in a restaurant, you know, off your phone, the entire menu, pay, walk out without talking to anyone. I'm not saying that's a lighthouse experience, but I'm saying that those tools are possible. And those are very powerful tools, and I think that's going to continue happening in terms of the customer experience being touched and influenced by technology. Um, Certainly, COVID has played a huge role in that. I mean, you know, I would have have never accelerated, for example, menu adoption on QRs and on digital front without COVID. It would have maybe taken five years. It's taken 10 months. Um, And then the second thing is, of course, the proliferation of cloud kitchens and dark kitchens, which has enabled many, many brands to expand beyond their borders and even within their borders in a very different form um, that is much less capex heavy it has its other challenges which we can discuss but that is also here to stay so i think that any f and b outlet today whether it's fast food fast casual um like us maybe that's a bit of a hybrid and more on the slightly you know medium high end and then the high end that thinks that they can survive without technology is fooling himself but you need to understand what tools you need and what for. But it's going to touch everything. Uh, and it already has. And I think that's a very good thing because ultimately it, it should enhance the experience, not take away from it. Yeah. Uh, so we are a very experiential brand. As you know, coming to the Linehouse, sitting there, listening to the music, looking at the art, talking If that's all part of the experience. But it doesn't mean that it needs to be, you know, offline. Uh, or manual, Uh, you can still embed a lot of technology in there to to make that efficient. So I I think there's uh, huge strides that are going to be made within within this sector uh, over the next couple of years. And you've already seen, of course, some of that, especially on the Cloud Kitchen side, as you very well know. I mean, you've seen all sorts of iterations that are popping up, and that's uh, very positive.
1: So what do you feel is lacking uh, purely in restaurant tech? So not F&B in general, um, just purely restaurant tech. And let's think of it this way. If you were to launch something today to solve for these pain points, what would that be?
0: Well, certainly, you know, some of the things that you're already seeing, like, you know, bill payment, you know, uh, I mean, that is certainly a pain point for many restaurants, especially fast casual. And when I'm looking now also at bars, for example, right? I mean, let's go to a pre Pre-COVID time, where many of us have experienced, you know, standing in line in a queue at a concert or at a sports game or even at a regular bar, and you know, trying to get the waiter's attention to either make an order or pay your bill because you you want to leave. I mean, that is a legitimate pain point. Today, uh, there's technology in place that not only resolves that, does it in a very um, safe way. So you so you can't you know because people tell us well, you know, how do I make sure that he doesn't um, just walk out? It's not very different than if you're sitting at a table, you know, how do you make sure that you don't walk out even if you had a physical bill? You know, so so I think that that there are these pain points that are around ordering and paying and so on, especially in a particular category of restaurants. Uh, Think about uh, food halls, you know, think about those kind of experiences. Yeah where you actually shy away from them many times because that part is so painful, right? You don't want to stand in line. You don't want to be trying to chase a waiter. That's, you know, you don't want to be waiting in line for... So um, that is certainly a very legitimate part. I think um, the experience within food waste will also become very, very important. There's a lot that's being done now in food tech there, and I think that... It's been a very manual experience. I mean, up until today, we still have supply, suppliers of ours that, you know, come to take physical checks. I mean, we're not yeah. even doing a wire transfer yet. So that just tells you where our restaurants are in terms of their development. So, you know, two, three percentage points uh, in food waste reduction is a huge impact to restaurants in terms of their overall business and their margin. So I think there are things that are front of house, as we say. Uh, Some of them I mentioned. There are things that are back of house. Um, Nothing is going to reflect, nothing is going to replace the human element. Let's just be very clear. I mean, if you are in a fast food environment, yes, because that's more of a factory-like, right? You're assembling a dish. It's an SQ of a burger. But if you are in our business, uh, the lighthouse kind of category where really the creativity and the quality and so on is a very big part of what we do, you're not replacing talented chefs. You're not replacing talented waiters or managers. But you are enhancing that experience around those pain points that really are not necessarily pleasant or helpful. If I can cut a line on a busy day on a Friday in one of my outlets by 15 minutes, you're happy and I'm happy. And that is technology uh, in my view. That is just higher efficiency, Uh, the customer having the same experience with less pain.
1: Absolutely. So um, on that, and maybe also on the importance um, of the role the the human essentially plays in the experience. So in a world where everything's increasingly on demand, digitized, automated to a certain extent, what what does the future, what do you think the future of F&B looks like, and maybe,
0: yeah. <laughs> what, what new
1: roles does it serve?
0: Yeah, you know, so I think there's, I want to friendship here. So if I today feel like I have something I want to share with Khaled and call him up and tell him I want to spend an hour brainstorming, right? That is not going to go away, and that is always best done in person, right? It doesn't even work yeah. as well through Zoom or through the phone. Yeah. What, I, what I'm what i talking about is how can I make my hour with Khaled be 60 minutes of talk and brainstorm and not 35 minutes of talk and brainstorm and 15 of trying to chase a waiter or, you know, getting the bill or trying to order or figuring out what the specials are. So that's the way I look at it in a very simplistic sense, in the sense that I don't think that human contact is going to be replaced. I do Mm -hmm. agree with you that this um, nature of everything immediate is a little bit draining, frankly. Uh, the, 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 The reality of... Social media has also made everybody, while it's democratizing in some way, it has obviously made it also very difficult for businesses like ours and others where anyone can yeah. have a license to go on, you know, a review and write whatever he wants. So he could be in a bad mood or just hungry. Um, but, but, but you have to accept it. I mean, you know, there is reality and there is wishful thinking. And I try to stay within the realm of reality. So I do think, Stephanie, some of this will stay. But I think at the heart of a restaurant, Uh, So I'm not talking about F&B broadly, but a restaurant is that human experience, you know, of connecting, which is why, by the way, during COVID, when everybody was like, no one will ever go back to restaurants. I mean, I never understood that.
2: I mean, because I knew that I have a need, and
0: you tell me, that's not how we operate as humans.
2: I remember that. We had this conversation. We had this conversation. I think, yeah. I think it was May 2020 and like the world yeah. was
0: going to, to crap. Yeah, people are like, you know, no yeah, one's British ever going to yeah. go back. I'm like, no, they will come back. And the first yeah. thing that came back was that. With restaurants, across the yeah. World. So people have um, a human need to connect. Um, and I think that's not going away. If anything, I think- And break is, bread, I, yeah. Uh, the act of breaking
2: bread together is- like
0: Fundamental,
2: it. right? Like,
0: yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, even things that... So, I think some things are not going away. You know, I mean, people are now... And I'm kind of moving here a little bit, but talking about, you know, yeah, I mean, all these funds are finding it so easy to fundraise on Zoom. Yes and no. I mean, has it worked better than we expected? Yes. Is there a huge difference between seeing someone in the eye when you're either giving them money or taking money? Yes, 100%. You know? Absolutely. So, I, I don't think... I think, hopefully, the efficient part will stay. but uh, But I think that some connections will remain. Now, uh, unfortunately, this belongs more in the kind of medium to high end of the sector. If you're looking at the the fast uh, food and fast casual element, well, there I think technology will take over the bulk of it. So, because the, the experience is really more about getting the order and consuming it as fast as possible, and the actual space is not necessarily what you're going for, I think there uh, you're gonna see very different direction. And I mean, I don't think anyone is not doing that, but if anyone is right-minded, runs one of those brands and thinks he can do it without technology, that's just completely crazy. Uh, so that experience is all about efficiency. It's all about speed. It's all about turnover. And uh, I think technology there is gonna play a, a very, very big role. And as a result, unfortunately, you would see lots of losers. So it's very small um, fast food and fast casual brands that may be in your neighborhood. Uh, I, I don't I don't know how those survive. I hope they do, I really do, because that's what makes the fabric of cities and communities. But it's very, very hard to see, you know, how they survive against the the you know the, the dominance of the world. Um that's more difficult for me to see because the moment a dominos or a, a you know um a chipotle shows up in your neighborhood. Just yeah, their the econo- the economics are just superior because they've automated the entire process. I mean, you have an app on your phone in some cases, so that's just game over. Very very hard to compete with.
1: Yeah, I, I'd like to zoom in on um, on Hashem, the art collector um, and the community builder. Um, I'm not sure if you like that term. I feel like it, it implies <laughs> um, to what you've done with it's the a lighthouse. Bit loaded, but <laughs> <laughs>
0: But um, but I'll take it. <laughs>
1: so I've I've read somewhere while while prepping for the episode that your house has been described as a history lesson in modern Middle Eastern art and culture. Oh wow.
2: Okay. <laughs> 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 there is a reason. Karen, you haven't been invited,
0: now you know. <laughs> um, that's um that's flattering. I know who wrote this. I think it's a bit exaggerated, but uh no look, I mean art um to me, it's only just a manifestation of that part that I said earlier, Stephanie, when I spoke about that, I feel that culture is just very much part and parcel of what I do and what I believe uh, belongs in any community. And I grew up as such. This was something that, you know, we, 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 it was just part of day-to-day life, right? I mean, you know, I was very lucky to, to have a mother that was interested in, in culture and, and go with her to art gallery openings and things like that. But I, I never took any particular interest when I was younger. I never took a single art class in in college. Um, So my interest really came much later, which tells you something about kind of, you know, how you process. And it became a way for me to understand myself. I don't want to overstate, but I think that's the case. Uh, And really uh, be able to uh, reflect. And I find that certainly in terms of the art uh, we buy or collect, that is a reflection of certain strands in our lives whether it's me or, or my wife um, but generally speaking I find that it, it just makes life more fun and enhances the overall experience um, and I also believe that you know it's as a of expression is extremely important so there's also a bit of a community building sense of giving back you know I do feel that it's very important because it's part of our heritage I was very lucky because, as I said, I grew up in a Cairo that was, to a large extent, act, very active uh, culturally. Uh, my, one of my um, great uncles was a well-known Egyptian artist called Mahmoud Said. that certainly had had an influence in some ways in the sense that I grew up around that and understanding that that is part of day-to-day life. Uh, he was a lawyer, as many people were at the time, so that wasn't his day job. Today, you can just be an artist. At yeah. the time, he couldn't do that. He was a lawyer by day and just painted by night, I suppose. Um, and I, um, I, I think that is, um, you know, anyone that can uh, support by writing about it, collecting, talking to artists, whatever it is, that's that's just a fabric of life. Um, and without it, life, I think, is a bit, you know, unidimensional and a bit boring. So that's really how I look at it uh, and not in any sort of more grandiose terms. Um, certainly, don't think of collecting or or buying art uh, kind of from a vanity perspective. I think it's nice to have nice things on your walls, but I think you can also be doing it for all. No, I don't say the wrong reasons. Everybody's free to do what he wants, but as a bit of a you know kind of look at me type of um, type of thing, which um, which I'm hoping that I've matured enough not to need to do. But who knows? <laughs> uh huh.
1: A bit of a, an odd question, maybe a curveball, but I wanted to ask what your thoughts on NFTs are. Um, oh yeah. yeah. With regards to the art itself, what it means to the creator, um, who, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Is it a yay? Is it a nay? What does it mean?
0: Oh, it's definitely a yay. Look, I'm not an expert, but no question, it's going to become part of the discussion and part of the overall art world as we know it. I mean, when you start, and this is a whole different conversation, Khaled and I, I think, touched on that a little bit uh, previously, but if you buy into the broader concept of a metaverse and you know the fact that people are going to have purely digital experiences that will transcend all sorts of boundaries that as we know them today, um, art is going to be part of that. Music is going to be part of that. You yeah. know, culture generally is going to be part of that. And we've seen that already. I mean, you have hip-hop artists showing up in into uh, video games. And five years ago, that would have sounded crazy. Today is absolutely and completely accepted. So I think NFTs have a big part to play. Um, what I'm finding fascinating is the type of art of per- peripherating in NFTs and what's being bought and sold. Because the big question here for me, which is be fun to see, and I don't have an answer, Will it conform to the traditional norms of art, as we know it? You yeah. know, and start falling in the categories of modern art and contemporary art and so on and so forth? Or will it take a completely different form? That I have no idea. Of course, the people driving this, and the many of them are people that are early believers in crypto and ether and and others, um, are the ones driving a big part of that process. Some of those artists were never did anything non-digital. So I am fascinated by it. I am very curious to see whether you'll start seeing you know, Jeff Koons NFTs, or you're gonna start seeing the Jeff Koons of the NFT world, or a combination of the two. Uh, so far, like uh, many other industries that are somewhat, in my view, um, behind the curve, the traditional art world um, started being, I mean, went through all the stages, right? Mm-hmm. Snubbing it, being in denial, slowly starts paying attention and only paying attention because of the numbers and now sort of slowly succumbing to the fact that you know what there may be something there and even if there isn't there's so much money involved we can't ignore it so it's fascinating to see uh, how that's going to play out I don't have an answer but I can definitely tell you that it will be part of uh, the new world and the new art world and that's very exciting now the final point here, would I today, and maybe because I'm 47, uh, buy an NFT and feel the same way I do about something that's on my wall? I don't know. I can tell you that I haven't bought an NFT. I don't know how to make me feel. Um, so that kind of visceral feel of something that you can touch, um, I don't know if I'll. you'll get that. It conjures the same kind of feeling. That, that I don't know. But whether it's going to be here to stay or not, for sure it's here to stay. Maybe it'll take a different form, but it's not going away.
2: Well, you know, you can't, um, you can't. if you can't touch it, then it, it can't have value. And I always remember this kind of, I don't know, the classic refutation of like uh, the, the, the labor theory of value, basically that like, you know, if you go... You know, people say that the value of a pearl is the fact that if you if you have to go diving for pearls, it's like really complicated to do, right? So you have to until go until the and Japanese all created, my, yeah, my yeah, artificial ones, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean, if you let's assume you still have the diver, and if the diver does exactly the same amount of labor, but just kind of picks up um, a rock instead of a pearl, then clearly it's not the labor that goes into it that drives the value. It's the demand, right? Like what to, what is what is someone. What is someone willing to pay for something? And that's wholly abstract, right? That's a wholly abstract it's concept. Very, it's very abstract.
0: It's, I th- yeah. totally agree with you. But you know what I think makes NFTs, to me, I see a much higher chance of it becoming an even bigger part of, of mainstream is it's digitally native. You know? Yeah. Um, so that's very different than a gallery, and I don't blame them. That's what they should do. But that's all of a sudden you know, streaming the experience of going to that gallery online That's just much harder to do, you know? And obviously they had to do this during COVID and to some extent that's become accepted. But when I was getting art pieces online and I'm going to Art Basel and to rooms and so on and so forth of these art fairs, that to me was an experience that frankly, I was not able to get excited about. But NFTs are digitally native. It's sort of like a Tesla versus Volkswagen, you know? I mean, they started from a premise of technology. That's a very, very different thing.
2: Yeah. No, totally. Fully agreed with you on, on that one. But it's interesting to see how it all shakes out. Um, definitely. It is. Kind of I mean, it is. Market. I remember
0: today, I mean, look at games. I mean, you know, games are mostly, many games are now free, but you know, you're buying these, you know, extra things, you know? That, yeah. yeah. And, and, and that is playing on human technology. I mean, they're playing on human sorry, uh, psychology, right? Yeah. Of yeah. The yeah. same way we used to wanting to wear nice shoes or the little sneakers. These kids are buying these tokens and whatnot, and not just kids, frankly. So it's fascinating. And my view on this is you have to accept it as part of evolution, and it's going to happen. Uh, I don't know how much we'd like all these things, but I think that the ones that seem digitally native and authentic as an experience will take off. Yeah,
1: Yeah. that's a very interesting take. All right, I think... This brings us to the end of our episode. Hashem, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, guys. It was a pleasure having you.
0: No, with great pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Always, always,
2: always great. We should do this like (laughs) uh, regularly and just like, you know, have open conversations.
0: (laughs) With great pleasure. Thanks, Stephanie. Thanks, Ken. Thanks for hosting me. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.